every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning and welcome to Money Talk for Thursday, the 26th of October, 2023. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. This is Peter Lewis with today's business and finance headlines on one of Hong Kong's most listened to financial podcasts. Hong Kong Chief Executive John Lee delivered his second policy address Wednesday morning. The CE stressed his speech was aimed at fostering hope, unity and vitality to drive the city's prosperity. Among the highlights were big cuts in property and stock trading taxes and a $20,000 cash handout for families that have a newborn baby. In the USA, Representative Mike Johnson of Louisiana, a loyal ally of Donald Trump, has been elected as the 56th Speaker of the US House after three weeks of turmoil. Mr Johnson won a House ballot with 220 votes, compared to the 209 of Democratic candidate Hakeem Jeffries. His election signals a sharp turn to the right for Republicans in the lower chamber. Mr Johnson voted against certifying Joe Biden's 2020 election victory and has opposed more Ukraine aid. Canada's central bank held its key interest rate at a 22-year high of 5% on Wednesday, as expected, saying prior rate increases had slowed down price growth and dampened economic activity. This was the third consecutive meeting at which officials held the policy rate unchanged. The yield on the US 10-year Treasury note rose for a second day to above 4.9% on Wednesday, approaching once again the 16-year high of 5.02% touched earlier in the week. It ended the session 12 basis points higher at 4.95%. And billionaire hedge fund manager Bill Ackman made a profit of about 200 million US dollars from his high-profile bet against US 30-year Treasury bonds. On today's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Nick Marrow, Lead for Global Trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit, discussing the latest developments in the oil markets. It's Vandana Hari, founder of Vanda Insights. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, or contact me on Facebook, Peter Lewis Money Talk is the page, or on X at MoneyTalkR3. <laughs> On Wall Street on Wednesday, US stocks closed sharply lower as investors weighed the latest batch of corporate results. The S&P 500 and Nasdaq hit levels not seen since May as Treasury yields rose for a second day, pressurising rate-sensitive tech shares. The S&P 500 fell 1.4% to 4,187, ending the day below the 4,200 level that was being widely watched by chart analysts. The Dow fell 105 points, or a third of a percent, to 33,036. The Nasdaq Composite lost 2.4% to finish the session at 12,821 for its worst day since February the 21st. Today's decline pulled the tech-heavy index down more than 10% from its recent high, putting it in correction territory. Alphabet sank 9.6%, its worst loss in about a year after its cloud unit reported Tuesday a smaller than expected revenue. Alphabet lost more than 166 billion US dollars in market cap yesterday, marking its largest one-day loss in value ever. Shares of Microsoft rose 3.1% after the company's revenue, earnings and guidance topped estimates. Gold, considered a haven asset, rose 0.4% to $1,970 an ounce. $978 an ounce, sorry. The precious metal has gained 8% since Hamas's October the 7th attack on Israel. 
Oil prices were firmer on Wednesday, despite bearish inventory data, as traders worried about a Gaza ground invasion. Brent crude oil settled 2.3% higher at $90.13 a barrel. The US dollar index was firmer on Wednesday and closed up a third of a percent at the day's high of 1065 the yen dropped to its weakest level this year against the dollar. The yen depreciated a third of a percent to 150.32 per dollar. That's a level not seen since October 2022. The Chinese yuan was almost unchanged at 7.31 and a half in onshore markets. Chinese stocks rallied after Beijing took stronger action to support the world's second largest economy, raising the fiscal deficit limit. The Shanghai Composite Index rose 0.4 percent to 2,974. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index climbed 94 points or 0.6% to 17,085, having been up as much as 2.8% earlier in the session. The Hang Seng Properties Index, which tracks the city's top developers, rose as much as 3.7% ahead of John Lee's policy address, but lost ground in afternoon trading to be up just half a percent, and that gauge has fallen almost a third this year. You can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. We've got a lot to get through this morning, so let's go straight to our guests. We have with us Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, a regular Thursday commentator. Morning, Andrew. Good morning. And also with us, Nick Marrow, who is lead for global trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit. Nice to talk with you once again, Nick. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Let's start with the policy address. Hong Kong Chief Executive John Lee delivered his second address yesterday morning. The CE stressed his speech was aimed at fostering hope, unity and vitality to drive the city's prosperity. Over the past year, he said his government has led Hong Kong out of the pandemic, with society returning to full normalcy. And Mr Lee said the economy is recovering, people's incomes are improving. He said real GDP in the first half of the year saw a 2.2% increase year on year. Although I should add the territory's economy did grow a rather lacklustre 1.5% year on year in the second quarter. He said the latest unemployment rate dropped to 2.8%, reflecting nearly full employment. And he said the economy is set to reverse last year's negative results and resume growth this year. And in his address, Mr. Lee unveiled broad-ranging plans to bolster Hong Kong's shipping, aviation, technology, arbitration and exhibition sectors in the government's attempts to boost the SAR's economic attractiveness. Um, Andrew and Nick, before we get on to specific um, measures that he announced, can I get, ask you for just your broad impression overall of, uh, of the policy address and also um, what he's saying he hopes to do, which is to, to boost Hong Kong's economic attractiveness? Maybe, Andrew, you want to kick off? Um, simply looking at the higher causation, I'll try that again slowly, the hierarchy by which the topics were introduced. Uh, it is very, very clear that this is a political speech. The first topic was uh, the way in which one country, two system is going to firm up, maintained, and push forward. And uh, the national security law is going to be passed. That was item number one and item number two was the patriotic education of pupils of students of civil servants and of citizens in general so in other words the two first things he had to say was about firming up the links of hong kong with mainland china which is perfectly okay this is not this is not a criticism this is simply a statement but it set if you want uh, the background against which everything else proceeded 
I couldn't help thinking when I heard the beginning of that, and as you say, his top priority, national security, more Patrick education, I couldn't help thinking that's going to add about another 100,000 people in the exodus out of Hong Kong. Well, that, that, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that for one moment as a criticism, never mind what I might or might not be thinking. This is simply a fact. I'm looking at that. And I think he should be congratulated in the sense of uh, flagging his, uh, his, uh, his, uh, his, uh, his flag on, uh, sorry, nailing his flag on the mast. He says, first and foremost, politics is most important. Mm. That uh, Hong Kong will more than ever be be a part of China, as if it is not already, but uh, it will continue furthering the process of uh, of uh, of uh, of, uh, of um, becoming an integral part of China. Now, the security law is old news because this has been going on well, well, well before even the the political uh, the political uh, uh, uncertainties of year eighteen nineteen. So this is this is hardly a, a big surprise. Okay, mm. but. Uh, it is something that, as you say, it is touchy because the world had, in general, a negative reaction when China introduced part of its own security law to Hong Kong. Now we're going to have our own. So that's, that's, that's the reality of the situation. And then everything else follows. Nick, what are your overall impressions of the policy address? Yeah, similar to what Andrew just said. So I guess I'll back up a little bit and talk, I guess, with the broader picture of economic expectations. Our forecast for Hong Kong was uh, to expect, you know, real GDP growth of around 3%, just shy of 3% this year. Um, that's assuming that growth accelerates in the second half of this year after somewhat lackluster performance in the first half. Um, but given the low base from, you know, the second half period in 2022, um, the fact that Hong Kong is reopened, um, in theory, this acceleration should continue. Um, on that same note, when we talk to companies and investors, there still seems to be a lot of hope um, for you know Hong Kong in its, in its post-opening phase. Uh, this idea that it's links with mainland China, particularly from the financial and information flow side, are unrivaled. That's one of the reasons that's going to keep Hong Kong relevant vis-a-vis, say, Singapore. Um, but all that optimism um, has to be couched against the backdrop of the politics, just like Andrew mentioned. Um, and I think this emphasis on national security, it, it's really hard to you know, overemphasize the fact that Hong Kong's reputation internationally has taken a huge hit. When we, when we talk to people overseas, one of the biggest challenges is the perception of Hong Kong. And when we talk to companies who are based in the city, one of their biggest challenges is encouraging talents to come to the city from abroad because of those same exact perceptions around the politics, around national security. Um, I think this kind of re-emphasis on national security, this discussion of, you know, introducing Article 23, um, and moving forward with this continued tightening, kind of this likely tightening the civil and political arena, that's going to work against these perceptions. Um, and for all of the optimism that people are trying to, you know, kindle and, and you know, hold on to and hope that that carries them through to 2024 and beyond, that that's going to be kind of overshadowed by these political dynamics. Mm. Um, and so for all of the rhetoric the government's coming out with around, you know, attracting talents, re-injecting vitality into the city, um, you know, showing the world that Hong Kong is open for business again, it all kind of comes back into questioning mode when we're looking at, you know, the clouds of national security and the political discussions. So I would say that um, in terms of balancing the optics here, that's the thing that is going to weigh on a lot of investors' minds and the minds of people who are thinking about, you know, using Hong Kong as, as a base to go back into mainland China. 
You've expressed it very well there. I mean, on, on the one hand, he wants to attract companies to come and make their headquarters in Hong Kong. He was talking about making it easier for people to join these uh, talent schemes. He wants people to come, uh, make Hong Kong a lot more attractive. But then the starting point is the very thing that's frightening people off. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I mean, when we think about the new talent scheme, I think there will be, you know, um, a likely boost in people who are looking to take advantage of that. But a lot of that's going to come from the mainland rather than from, you know, non-mainland mm. markets. Um, and one thing that we've been hearing from, you know, colleagues or even just anecdotally in the last couple of quarters is that, you know, if you're a mainland, you know, professional, you might actually be looking at opportunities in Shanghai or Beijing more so than you're looking at Hong Kong. And if you're looking at, you know, leaving the mainland, you're considering places like London or New York or Singapore. Uh, Hong Kong is maybe not as high in the priority as it used to be. Um, and I think a lot of that reflects the political dynamics and the changes in the political landscape that have happened in the last couple of years. And so really it has to be this, this you know, very... Is this uphill battle of tackling the perceptions that Hong Kong faces, which I think the government, I think, is aware of, but to date doesn't really seem like it has a good sense of how to actually address this and how to actually alleviate people's concerns. And I think that's full on display, this, this you know, inability to do so. That's full on display via the, you know, incredible emphasis on national security that we saw with John Lee's speech. Mm. Um Andrew, I mean, it was a wide-ranging speech, wasn't it? Three and a half hours long, almost. I mean, he touched on almost every aspect of life in Hong Kong, from housing to development to, to the economy to old people to young people. Various sectors uh, were told they were going to get funding and boosting, shipping, aviation, technology, uh, the exhibition sector. It really was a very broad-ranging um, sort of speech. Do you think, though, when you put all those measures together, are they going to be effective in boosting Hong Kong's economic attractiveness? Well, there are, there are effectively three things here. First, I must admit, I like the fact that uh, he quantified and itemized what he wants to do. And that is the key points. Uh, in the first uh, speech he gave in back in 22, there were 110 points. And these are actually quantitative points. So he says, I would like two and a half thousand civil servants to visit mainland China on educational purposes by the end of the year 23. Point. Can you see? In other words, it is quantitative. It doesn't say we will tighten the links between. This is hypothetical. Mm. Again, putting it up. So there were 110 points. Count them. Now there were 170 points, of which 73 of those were new ones. In other words, he's he. I'm not surprised it lasted three and a half hours because he increased he increased quite significantly the amount of items, the amount of policy issues that he wanted to bring forward and he wanted to explain. Now, the second point is, is this is not a budget speech. In other words, he doesn't say, and by increasing expenditure on technology by X percent, I expect this to add W percent on GDP. That's not, that's not really his business. That's not his task. Okay, this is going to be over to Paul Chan in his budget speech, how much all this translates into additional spending in the economy. Mm. Some of it was clearly obvious, like the famous baby 20,000, all right? But then, of course, we don't know how many families in Hong Kong just have had a baby and whether this translates into another kind of a voucher scheme. Uh, given the, the very steep uh, drop in the, in the, not only fertility, in the in births rate, then it's, it's hardly likely that it's going to be a large sum of money. Mm. 
So the second point, this is not about how this is going to support GDP, but where the economy is going to go forward to. And uh, the third point, it is again the very obvious one, it is Greater Bay Area, Greater Bay Area, Greater Bay Area and Northern Metropolis. Mm -hmm. This is very, very, very important. Uh, in the last year and a half, I've become possibly a resident expert on the GBA because my clients come up and says, I want to know everything there is to know about GBA in terms of the integration for Hong Kong. And a lot of it is, uh, let's say, good wishes. And now it becomes much harder facts, which I like that because it is not blah, blah, you know, kind, kind, kind of statement. And uh, looking at the number of quantifiable statements in uh, John Lee's speech makes my life much easier by simply referring to, you know, X thousand things are going to happen by W date. Mm. Okay, well, let's go out of those, was it, 180 points or so. Let's start delving into a couple of them that were sort of grabbed the headlines. I mean, Nick, first of all, the one uh, that was widely expected, a, a cut in stock trading fees. The, uh, a lot of people in the financial services industry have been calling for this, and, and Mr. Lee is obliged. He's going to reverse the emergency increase in the stamp duty on stock trades to try and revive, basically, what's going on in the financial markets here. He's proposed to reduce the stamp duty on stock transactions transactions to 0.1% from 0.13% once that's approved by LegCo. Daily equity trading on the on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, it fell 9% in the first nine months of the year, but IPOs, total equity funds raised, has declined two-thirds in that period. And also it comes after China cut in half its stamp duty on stock trades. Um, so Nick, how effective do you think this is going to be? Is it going to be the game changer that he hopes in terms of revitalizing trading on our local bourse? That's a good question. And honestly, Andrew might be a better place than me to answer it, but I'll, I'll share my two cents anyway. Um, I mean, I think it's it's... Not necessarily. I'm not going to criticize it. Um, I think you know, taking moves to reinvigorate the market, um, as you know, maybe as modest as those headline numbers would suggest, it, it's a step in the right direction. Um, I think you know, Hong Kong is one of the most, if not the most, expensive bourse in the world, um, and so making anything, uh, any you know, doing anything that would allow that to be cheaper, um, to you know, encourage people to kind of come back and encourage trading volumes to return, you know, that's going to be again a step in the right direction. But I think. You know, the second thing that is going to be the big caveat here is a lot of the reason why the markets have performed so badly um, and why um, I think there's been so much financial stress is because of such weak sentiment, um, not just in terms of Hong Kong's economy and the direction of Hong Kong's economy, but also what's happening in mainland China. Um, I mean, we are still seeing a ton of apprehension in terms of where the mainland economy is going. Yes, we had Q3 data uh, for China's economy showing that there was stabilization um, in kind of the macroeconomic performance. Um, but first off, I'd, I'd caution that, you know, there's kind of a tenuous link between economic fundamentals and then what's happening in the markets. But secondly, that hasn't really been enough to you know, sustainably revive investor optimism or just, you know, basic investor sentiment around all of that. I think we're going to need to see, you know, a broader based indication um, that things are really improving for sentiments to kind of come back. When we talk to companies here around deal making um, and everything that would go into the prospects of, you know, IPOs, et cetera, we're hearing that the pipeline has essentially dried up in a lot of industries, um, given the fact that there are concerns, not just in terms of the economic direction, but also the policy direction, the geopolitical direction. There's a lot of things that are going on, which I don't think, you know, a cut um, in mm -hmm. trading duties is, is really going to necessarily um, 
have a lot of effect to, to offset all of this. Um, so again, you know, maybe a, a move in the right direction, but in terms of yielding any tangible results, particularly in the short term, um, I'm not sure we can hold our breath, but I'm sure, you know, Andrew, you might have some <laughs> differing views on that. Yeah, ab absolutely. Markets go up and down, not because it is expensive or not expensive to trade. They go up and down, as you say, because of expectations and sentiment. And therefore, cutting the stamp duty, there is, I just can't see how this is going to support the market or make it go up. Uh, the concept of liquidity and cost uh, always translates in terms of the information available in the market, um, reflects on the rules and regulations concerning the market and not how expensive it is. Having said that, however, yeah, well, it is okay. You know, you make it cheaper and that is not going to attract people to come and invest. It will simply be a relatively minor consideration when it comes to saying, do we buy the stuff in Hong Kong or do we buy the stuff off Hong Kong? You know, a lot of the shares in Hong Kong that are quoted in the United States, people may just decide to come back because now it is relatively cheaper in relationship to what it was okay, to buy now. So I completely agree with Nick. Prices in the stock market move because of expectations, macro data, uh, interest rates and so on and not because of taxes taxes on the trading of shares okay we seem to be unanimous on that so nick let's talk about the other um tax that was uh, that was reduced he announced the first change to the housing curb since they were introduced more than a decade ago foreigners will now pay 15 percent levies on homes instead of 30 percent while hong kong residents buying a second home will pay seven and a half percent in taxes down from 15 and along with halving those stamp duties mr lee said sellers will be able to sell properties without tax after holding them for two years down from three years previously that measure known as the special stamp duty was first introduced in 2010 and there's also going to be a stamp duty suspension arrangement for incoming talents uh, who, act, who buy residential property, but that is subject to them obtaining permanent residency um, in Hong Kong. And just some data on on the housing market. Um, falling demand and rising borrowing costs have driven how existing home prices now down to a six-year low, and the official housing price index is down almost 8% from a year earlier. Uh, new housing uh, also under pressure. There's almost 20,500 vacant properties now in the third quarter, the most in almost two decades. Um, so, Nick, is this going to do the trick? <laughs> Uh, if you had to ask, ask me to kind of sum up, I'd say probably not. Um, again, I think it's it's moving policy in the right direction. There's been a lot of pressure from, say, you know, middle class families and property developers to stabilize a recent pricing slump. And one of the ways you can do that is you know trying to you know cut property stamp duties as temporary as it might be. But at the same time, we need to remember you know several constraining factors. One, you know, interest rates um, globally are just you know incredibly high right now, and I think you know given that the cost of borrowing is, is still, you know, much more expensive than it, than it has been for much of the past decade. That is going to at least have a dampening effect on sentiment. The second thing, um, which would be is the larger issue, is that property sentiment, particularly from the mainland, is still you know, very, very weak. Um, uh, and I think, I mean, I'm not sure how much of a correlation we can draw between China's property markets and Hong Kong's property markets, aside from the fact that valuations on both just seem to be a bit ridiculous. Um, but I think in terms of sentiment um, and the willingness to buy, uh, I'm not entirely sure these policy measures are going to revive that either. Um, again, the housing market does seem to respond to um, you know, a degree of speculation um, and the fact that 
you know, particularly mainland buyers look at this as an investment vehicle. Um, and given the developments that we're seeing in China and the wealth effects, the negative wealth effects that we're seeing um, in that market as a result of the property correction there, um, I think it's going to have a limited spillover into Hong Kong, regardless of the local policy moves. Um, and the final thing I'd say um, in terms of what we just mentioned around easing rules for foreign talents to buy and trade property, this is inevitably going to have to be couched in that wider discussion around attracting foreign talent to Hong Kong, as well as the type of talent that um, has the means to buy prices or very, very pricey flats in Hong Kong. Um, I think, you know, this is going to be targeting a very specific part of the uh, kind of foreign talent pool. Um, and given all of the kind of structural shifts we've seen in Hong Kong in the last couple of years, um, particularly with, you know, more established residents with families, et cetera, moving out of the city and not being replaced by, by new blood, essentially, that, you know, raises the question, okay, it's easier for foreigners to buy and sell property, but is this really the group that's going to revitalize the entire sector, particularly if we continue to see you know, a net outward flow of migration from local Hong Kongers, um, particularly in the middle class. And so, yeah, I, I would say, again, maybe <laughs> cautiously optimistic in the fact that this is, you know, a policy step in at least the right direction in terms of stabilizing the market, but in terms of the actual outcomes, um, especially in the near term, maybe I'm a little, uh, a little bit more, uh, a little less, a little bit more cautious, I'll say that. Andrew, it, it seems that this helps developers more than it helps residents, really. Many, I'm, I'm sort of wondering why the government wants to stop prices going down, given that we're one of the most expensive cities in the world and a lot of people can't get on the housing ladder. Yeah. What was very interesting, well, this was interesting to me, is, uh, is the bifurcation of who got hit in the past and therefore got unhit now. One was foreigners, and at the time when this was introduced, the big bogeyman was uh, mainland Chinese buying out the Hong Kongese of their of their home and place, home and hearth. In other words, it was primarily directed towards mainland Chinese buying in Hong Kong, the foreigners buying in. And the second part, of course, was uh, people buying more than one flat, in which case, in inverted commas, they were speculating. No, they were not. They were investing. Because on the same basis, you should stop people from buying shares, okay, unless they guarantee to you that they are going to sell, hold them for the next two years. And they are not buying them because they are speculating. I think uh, there can be a great degree of uh, hypocrisy here. So it was very interesting to see that there were two groups of, let's call them minorities, that they were relieved of, uh, of some tax pressure. Now, whether this is going to translate as a percentage of the total market, and the market, remember, and that is terribly boring, I apologize, uh, Peter, market consists of two parts, consists of used property and new property. Used property, you simply play musical chairs. Uh, this has nothing to do with the developers, it has to do with the individual people in the market, and therefore the impact of that on benefit in the developers will be only if we're talking the new market. And uh, it is, uh, I have always had a lot of trouble differentiating between the two and teasing out which part goes into the existing and which part goes into the new market. So this was a long-winded answer to say that uh, it, it is likely to be of minority interest mm -hmm. because the two groups that were picked out, it was like saying, uh, 
I don't know, I mean, I'm going to make this completely stupid, like saying Muslim Italians and Roman Catholic Arabs. I mean, this was two very small <laughs> minorities that they were picked out. I'm sorry, I use this because it is, it is a silly way of saying, uh, of saying, you know, the foreigners and the speculators. Okay. Um, Nick, let's, let's talk about the real headline grabber, I think, that, that came out of the budget, and that's Hong Kong parents with newborns going to receive 20,000 Hong Kong dollars as part of a suite of incentives to boost uh, the birth rate from basically yesterday. Families with newborns will have priority also to select their own government subsidized flats. 10% of the upcoming flats are going to be reserved for them. Uh, taxpayers who live with their firstborn child now or in the future until the child reaches the age of 18, the tax deduction uh, is going to be raised by about 20%. Now, Hong Kong has the lowest fertility rate in the world, 0.8 births per woman, according to the UN Population Fund. And also, Hong Kong has among the longest life expectancy in the world. The proportion of elderly people aged 65 and above is going to increase from 20% of Hong Kong's population to nearly one-third by the end of the next decade. So, Nick, what do you make of this measure? Is it the right solution uh, to address the problem? Well, I mean, it's... <laughs> How do I say this? It, it's the right solution in the sense that at least the government's thinking about it. But in terms of the numbers that are coming out, I think a lot of people are looking at that, you know, the the deductions or even that $20,000 kind of subsidy. I mean, and kind of laughing. Um, I think I'll, I'll quote Hong Sung Bank here, which I think estimated that in terms of raising a child, you know, average total expenses of 6 million Hong Kong dollars are, are needed. Um, and so when you think about yeah, the tax deductions or that, you know, one-off cash incentive, that that's a drop in the bucket. Um, and just anecdotally talking to people here around whether this is going to be a decisive factor in family planning, I'm not I'm not hearing anything positive. Um, Hong Kong is, you know, prohibitively expensive. Um, and, and I think um, when we tie it back to some of the other themes we've been discussing this morning um, around, you know, patriotic education and national security, the sentiment that a lot of people in the middle class particularly have around where the city is going and whether they want to raise children in this environment, that has to be benchmarked against these kind of, you know, child, you know, planning, family planning inducements. Um, a, a lot of the overseas emigration that we've seen in the last couple of years has been from the middle class in terms of um, their anxieties over the type of education that their children are going to receive in the city. Um, and so you already have the people with the financial means who are very, very hesitant around the future of Hong Kong. Um, and for the you know lower income groups in the city, they're going to require a lot more financial incentives than was currently being proposed in you know John Lee's speech um, to think about um, you know, having having a family. And so again, I think <laughs> I keep saying this because I think it, it, it really touches on the points. It, it's important in the sense that the government recognizes that there's a problem and they're moving in the direction to try and solve it, but the policy just doesn't seem like it's going to be enough. I, I started on the basis that uh, children are biodegradable but non-returnable. Okay, that's 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 an essential point to, to, be, to, be, to begin with. And uh, the second point was that the policy had uh, a stock effect and a flow effect. The stock effect is, is these people already were naughty with their wives or husbands. They had the buns in the oven, the babies are born. So they're not going to be stimulated or induced, well, perhaps to go and have another one. Okay, unlikely. So it is on the flow part, which is interesting. And here is where Nick comes and says, uh, 
before you call your wife and say, switch on the candlelight, put something uh, interesting music, and I'm coming home early from the office, darling. Okay, if somebody will have to say yes, that's going to be six, <laughs> that's going to be six million honkies. So please, <laughs> please come late. <laughs> yes. Now, I, I, I sent a note to my clients, and one of them was uh, a reminder that years back, the Singaporean government had the same concerns and they were particularly upset of young graduates not marrying and having children so they organized uh, they organized uh, cruises to which they invited an equal number of boys and girls uh, not to go and be naughty but to, to know and get to know each other because apparently this particular group was incredibly difficult to get together and then to foment relations so it was very interesting. In Singapore, instead of being given 20,000, you are asked to go on a boat cruise with uh, contemporaries of, of your time. <laughs> Without, uh, of course, being Singapore, they could not possibly say, and therefore get on with it. Okay, <laughs> they said simply, get to know each other. Well, I think it was very sweet. It was very nice. <laughs> the same so impact. This, 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 is, this is also my, my, my equal reaction. Yeah, it is, it is very sweet and it's very nice. But uh, if you really want to reverse the aging process of a country, okay, first, this is a generational issue. You're counting on 30 years. So uh, that's not a short-term policy. The fastest one is to encourage specific form of immigration. Very simple. You want, uh, you want a, a more youthful structure of the population in Hong Kong, open up the doors, which they're already open, to immigration from China, which also now is having an aging population, but at least it doesn't have an, as much an aging population as Hong Kong is. And in any case, you have the proportional effect only a, a, only a zero point 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 x percent from China need to immigrate in Hong Kong, and this will change completely the bio the ethno. I'll try that again very slowly. Uh, the the age structure of the population, the demographic structure of the population. Long-winded answer. It was very sweet, but uh, almost irrelevant. Okay. Well, finally, let, let me ask you, Nick, about um, a, a topic that was mentioned many times in the speech, the Greater Bay Area. He mentioned it, in fact, 60 times um, this year. Um, he was talking about uh, a Hong Kong investment corporation to look into creating a fund with the Guangdong government to invest in projects in the Bay Area that deliver both economic and social benefits. The CEO also promised more tourism and business connections with neighbouring Shenzhen to wider exchange and development initiatives. The Hong Kong government's going to also co collaborate with the Guangdong provincial government to, de uh, to develop an electronic services network known as the Digital um, Bay Area. What do you make all of this? A lot of focus, I suppose, as expected, on the Greater Bay Area, also the northern metropolis as well, uh, just over the border uh, from Shenzhen, got several uh, sort of mentions as well. And um, John Lee's going to publish an action agenda for that uh, shortly. But what did you make of it, Nick? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to keep my remarks short just because Andrew's the expert on GBA. So uh, he'll probably have a lot more to say than I will. Um, but I'd say that from our view, uh, looking at, you know, projects like Northern Metropolis, we do see that as positive uh, in the sense of encouraging investment spending, um, which in turn should help stabilize and even lift GDP growth. But the long term nature of this suggests that, you know, these benefits aren't going to materialize until the late 2020s at the earliest. I mean, there, there's still so much planning that has to be done, so much kind of smoothing of competing local interests. Um, I think the Hong Kong government is also famous sometimes for its bureaucracy. 
this ensures that while the policy ambition is there, it's likely not going to translate into immediate economic gains, um, which I think is something which we can you know take that theme and apply to GBA more generally. Um, I would say as well that um, there do seem to be some, some of, I guess, natural synergies between mainland and Hong Kong, particularly from the financial angle in Hong Kong, and then in the mainland, especially, um, you know, driving that capital into, say, strategic industries. But the issue ha with GBA has always been the fact that there are different regulatory regimes around information flows, capital flows, people flows. I think one thing that we noticed in the speech in terms of, you know, um, you know, streamlined and eased visa access would be very positive in terms of helping remove some of those regulatory barriers. But at the end of the day, it's only going to be removing some of those regulatory barriers. One of the biggest impediments to this scheme has been the fact that you have, you know, this lack of harmonization between, you know, Guangdong, Macau and Hong Kong. Um, until we start to see more progress there, um, I think we can remain optimistic about GBA and excited about its potential, but I think we need to also need to remain realistic around um, the gains that it's going to offer, at least in the near term. Uh, but I'll stop there and kind of pitch it over to Andrew, who I know follows this very, very closely. Well, I like, uh, Peter, you saying that uh, Mr. Lee mentioned GBA more than 60 times, and I always have visions of politicians coming up to the roster and says, I'm going to mention GBA a lot in this speech. So I'm going to start straight away by saying GBA 60 times to get it out of the way. Okay, so so here I am. I've mentioned it. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, GBA uh, uh, can be a nefarious concept, can be something uh, very concrete. It's getting much more concrete. For example, the things that I saw in the speech reflecting back to the action points were, were, were much more uh, concrete and uh, numerified, quantified, than simply saying we are tightening up relations. One thing, for example, I'm not, uh, I'm not, uh, I'm not diverting here. That immediately pricked my ears was that he said, "I'm going to." John is now quoting Mr. Lee. I'm going to make it easier for the transform, the transference of data between the GBA and Hong Kong, and that has been quite a problem. Uh, because when China itself two years ago passed its own data law, it became very difficult for the transference of data between China and anybody, including Hong Kong, which was rather strange because Hong Kong is part of China, <laughs> but then it isn't. Okay, so I rather like that because uh, the existence of a colossal amount of uh, big data in China is of keen interest interest to, 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 to companies and uh, initiatives in Hong Kong. And I would like to see that uh, this is going to be liberalized. But of course, it depends very much on the definition of what is politically, let's call it correction, national security sensitive in China and, and what it is not. But that I liked. I mean, this is A, you put your finger straight into a point that some of my clients were very keen to hear about. I will be able to get data out of China without having to sign too many pieces of paper, crudely. Okay. Well, look, thank you very much for your insights there. Sadly, we've run out of time. Lots more we could talk about. It was a three and a half hour speech at the end of the day, but we haven't got three and a half hours this morning to delve into it. But you heard there Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Nick Marrow, who is lead for global trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit. <laughs> I'm joined now by Vanda Dahari, who is founder of Vanda Insights. Good morning, Vanda. 
Good morning, Peter. Thank you for having me on your show. You're very welcome. Well, look, we're back again in volatile oil markets. We seem, seem to be seeing almost every day 2% plus moves um, in Brent crude oil. Um, as well as all the usual things that we've talked about in the past that affects it, the OPEC production cuts, the economy, the state of stockpiles, we've got a new concern now, haven't we, which is what's going on in the Middle East between Israel um, and, and Hamas. That seems to have built in now a war premium. But am I right in assuming that the Middle East issue is now the number one driver behind the oil price at the moment? Um, arguably, yes. It is the war premium, uh, as you just mentioned. Uh, look, Israel-Hamas conflict has not impacted oil supply from the Middle East uh, or production for that matter. But it's the fear that uh, should this escalate into a regional conflict and suck in more countries in that region into a military combat, which may in turn then affect their oil production or supply. Uh, so as you can see, just from my explanation, there are so many dots to connect. Um, and really the oil market is flying blind here when trying to assess, let alone price in, what exactly is the risk to Middle Eastern supply. So in a situation like this, uh, you will see the market keeping a very close eye on headlines coming out of the Middle East on how this conflict is shaping up. And I think we just need to be uh, braced for ongoing volatility, not just on a day-to-day -day basis, but even intraday, uh, we are seeing, seeing major swings in crude prices. It seems to react to almost every piece of news, doesn't it? Like Benjamin Netanyahu was saying today that um, he was preparing um, to put troops into Gaza and suddenly the oil price is up 2%. Yes, I think the oil market participants uh, cannot afford to wait uh, to, for any eventuality to pan out. You know, that has always been the nature of the oil markets. You want to take... Uh, positions uh, in an anticipatory basis, pr protect uh, your positions. So you will always want to jump ahead. Uh, but it's also complicated by the fact that uh, a lot of the headlines are just rhetoric. So, you know, when uh, threats or the worst case scenario uh, risk doesn't pan out, then of course, uh, you have to let go, unwind your positions. And then you see, which is why you see sharp spikes uh, and then uh, a drop in prices. And, you know, so as I said, that kind of volatility is just, uh, you can't escape that as long as this situation continues to fester, uh, which from all accounts looks like will be the case. Mm. Have you a sense of how much the war premium is? In other words, where oil will be if it wasn't for what was happening in the uh, the Middle East? Yeah, so as we speak, uh, Thursday morning, uh, rent is trading just above $90 per barrel. At this level, I would say uh, we, we easily have at least a $5 per barrel premium in crude. Mm, okay, so it is substantial. But I suppose the fear, if the conflicts were to spread, is Iran, isn't it? That Iran could end up uh, being involved in this, and there's a lot of saber-rattling going on um, over there. But is that the main worry? Uh, it is it is the worry in the sense that uh, the rhetoric has been the loudest from Iran. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, the oil market does have instances uh, in history where Iran did threaten to block the, the, the vital uh, choke point of the Strait of Hormuz. 
you know, which sees nearly 17 million barrels per day of oil crossing through uh, back and forth uh, between the Persian Gulf and the rest of the world on, on a daily basis. And the other, of course, is a, a very well-known fact now uh, that uh, Iran has uh, proxy militias in the region. And um, it hasn't really been uh, subtle, shall we say, in threatening Israel that it would be fighting in, on multiple fronts, uh, mm-hmm. implying that its proxy militias in, in Yemen, the Houthi rebels, of course, the Hezbollah uh, in Lebanon and uh, the Hamas have, are already engaged in, in conflict with uh, Israel. So, yes, I, I, Iran is the single biggest danger. But then, uh, again, you know, connecting the dots, Uh, when the oil market is trying to assess the risk of uh, a wider conflagration, it's that if Iran jumps in, uh, then chances are that other regional countries and all of whom are pretty much major oil and gas producers would have to jump in as well, uh, you know, which then makes the problem much bigger than simply, let's say, Iran holding back its oil or Iran trying to prevent uh, the flow of oil through the Strait of Hormuz. And if that worst case scenario happens, what happens to the oil price? Where do you think it goes to? It's, you know, it's almost inconceivable. It's never happened. Uh, It's never happened in history that uh, all of uh, the Middle East was prevented. Uh, Either major uh, oil production was shut in across the region. Uh, You know, nearly a quarter of the world's oil is produced in that Middle East region. It's it's never happened. So it's very hard uh, to assess what that situation might look like. And uh, arguably, that would also perhaps pull in countries in from the rest of the world, in which case you have World War Three. So, uh, you know, it's it's just it's in, inconceivable. There, there will be no limit. Uh, you know, forget about even talking about $100 oil. There's, you know, it, it could continue spiraling up into triple digits. Mm. And, and what about the uh, the production cuts? Saudi Arabia's had a big impact, hasn't it, in terms of um, getting these production cuts uh, in place. Um, presumably, they're also having um, a big in- impact on the oil price as well. Yes, indeed. And that has been a major supportive factor and occasionally a bullish factor in driving prices up, and especially if we're talking of Brent from the 80s into the 90s uh, in recent months. And from the looks of it, uh, OPEC Plus is determined to stay on that path. They are uh, removing currently about 3 million barrels per day of crude from the market compared to, let's say, the start of this year. Uh, And uh, I think they've also made it pretty clear in the past that they are not going to react in terms of putting more oil into the market to what they see as temporary spikes or spikes in crude that are caused by what they deem speculation, you know, the current uh, case being an example, you know, fear premium, a speculative premium. So um, OPEC Plus is very much in control of the market. Uh, They and from the looks of it, they are going to continue uh, that stance well into 2024 as well. So it sounds like then they're not going to be dissuaded by what's going on in the Middle East at the moment to to reassess. No, certainly not. And the irony of the situation, uh, unfortunately, which is what makes the worst case scenario really bad, is that uh, the the spare capacity to make up for any uh, drop in, in any disruption in supply is all in the Middle East, you know, which is the region which would be, we are talking about, would be at risk. So which is why uh, I said it would be Armageddon if uh, 
if, you know, God forbid, uh, more countries in the Middle East get drawn into a, a military combat. Mm. And, and what about stockpiles? The US has been dipping into its stockpiles, hasn't it? What, what sort of influence is that having on the oil price? So one of the biggest uh, visible effects of these OPEC plus cuts uh, now going on for nearly six months has been a drop in commercial crude and refined product inventories across the world. And of course, uh, most prominently visible in the OECD countries where they're measured and reported on a monthly basis. Uh, and uh, even more so in the U.S., where they're reported on a weekly basis. So we have seen uh, crude respond uh, quite sharply to uh, the, the report that comes out every Wednesday from the U.S. Uh, talking about U.S. Uh, crude and product inventories, of which for the past several weeks have shown sharp declines. Uh, so that is uh, a reflection of uh, the OPEC plus cuts uh, taking away supply, prompting cons- major consumer nations to dip into their inventories. So that has become a major worry factor on the supply front, a major factor for bullishness in, in crude prices as well, especially going into the northern hemisphere of winter months. Uh, you know, you want to have a comfortable cushion of inventories uh, to dip into also in the event of uh, supply disruptions and not just in the Middle East, but, you know, that is the story of the oil markets. You you can get hit by a major supply disruption uh, without much notice. So uh, that so, but that is uh, OPEC Plus's stated aim. They are trying to reduce the supply inventories. Uh, you know, clearly they want prices to remain in the sort of eighty to ninety dollar uh, band for crude. Uh, you know, which is again expected to be their aim uh, into twenty twenty four as well. I remember it wasn't that long ago that the US was talking about being totally self-dependent when it comes to oil. It didn't have to rely on OPEC or the Middle East because it had all this shale um, oil. What's happened to all of that? Yeah, so that time has long gone on. The US is no longer what we call in the oil market a swing producer, uh, which is being able to quickly respond and put major volumes into the market uh, if prices are going up, and, and we know when, when we talk about global crude prices going up, the biggest pain point, of course, in the U.S. is prices at the pump. Uh, and they have this sort of uh, a red line at $4 per gallon mark, uh, which tends to, and especially going into the election year, right, which, which tends to sort of uh, infuriate and annoy people uh, quite a lot. So, uh, but the U.S. has lost that ability, the shale sector, uh, which pumps uh, more than three quarters of uh, total U.S. oil now is uh, in a completely different era. Uh, it is sticking to capital discipline. It is returning uh, money, uh, profits, humongous profits from last year it, back to the shareholders, paying off debt uh, and now consolidating. We've seen with the uh, ExxonMobil Pioneer deals and uh, the uh, Chevron and Hess deals. So uh, the U.S. production is continuing to recover from, uh, you know, a big steep drop in 2020 and 2021, uh, but, you know, very steadily. It's not going to respond uh, to uh, to high prices uh, caused by uh, OPEC plus cuts, which is why, as I said earlier, OPEC plus is really in control of the markets right now. 
And, and what effect is the economy overall having on oil prices? We're, we're getting a very mixed picture, aren't we? The US seems to be doing better than what people thought economically. The Eurozone seems to be doing worse. China also yeah. is disappointing. So it, lots of mixed signals on the economy. But what's the impact that, of that, all that on the oil price? So I expect once uh, the dust settles on the uh, Hamas-Israel front, we will see crude go back to tracking uh, the, the two main factors, namely OPEC plus cuts, which is pretty much, uh, you know, we know what to expect unless they spring some surprises, uh, uh, and the economy. So economic sentiment, and, and quite rightly, as you, as you just uh, noted, it is, uh, tends to focus on what's happening in the U.S., in the Eurozone, and China. Economic sentiment is uh, basically serves as a proxy for oil demand because, you know, it, by the time it, it, any changes made, big swings in uh, economic uh, activity percolate down to oil demand, uh, it's, it's quite late for the oil markets. Again, as I said, they, you want to react in advance. So it, it is used as a proxy. So, yes, uh, it is a very mixed picture, which makes it harder for the oil uh, market to to assess, uh, you know, what it should be prepared for in terms of 2024 oil demand, especially oil demand growth. As of now, the expectations are that the U.S. economy will uh, evade recession. Uh, you know, but Europe, of course, is in a, in a bad shape. I think that was uh, reinforced by the uh, data, PMI data that we saw this week. And as far as China is concerned, the way I see it is it's, it's the economy is chugging along. Uh, yes, there was a, a major stimulus announcement again this week, but nobody has uh, moved the uh, uh, the needle on their expectations for Chinese uh, oil demand growth as a result of that stimulus. You know, it remains to be seen what impact, if any, it has uh, on the economy. So, uh, you know, th those are all the considerations for the oil market. But right now, uh, they are being way overshadowed by what's going on in the Middle East. Um, they'll come back uh, to the to center stage once uh, the conflict in the Middle East uh, subsides. Vanda, always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Peter. That's Vanda Nahari, who is founder of Vanda Insights. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening this morning to Money Talk. Do please take a look at my newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com for more information on developments during the Asian Trading Day. I'll be back tomorrow with another episode of Money Talk. I'll be joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and John Schofield, Managing Director of Tempest Investments. And with a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, the CEO at Staten Partners. Please join me again tomorrow. Money Talk. <laughs>